0: APU. American Public University is proud to present Intellectable.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Intellectable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Deal. Today, we're talking about the world of professional motocross and supercross racing. My guest today is AJ Catanzaro. A.J. is a professional supercross racer and owner of the world's number one traveling motocross academy. A.J. has been racing professionally for 10 years and has been teaching for the last decade as well, earning top five finishes at the pinnacle of the sport and traveling the world to teach riders of all abilities. A.J., welcome to Unelectable and thank you for being our guest today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. For the sake of our listeners who probably don't know this, I am an amateur, novice motocross rider by hobby, and I've been racing since I was little on and off, but you've obviously taken this sport to a whole new level in the, in the professional world. But for our listeners who may not really have any idea what that's like, maybe they've never seen a race televised or in person, can you give us a sense of what motocross slash supercross, what the sport is, what it consists of, what some of the skills involved are for professionals at your level?
0: Yeah, so to dumb it down, for lack of a better term, as much as possible, motocross is just racing motorcycles on dirt. So what I do specifically is supercross, which is stadium racing. It's a bit tighter environment. We don't do tricks, but we're in the air more than we're not. And it's a race, but there's a lot of jumping involved. Speeds aren't as high. I would say top speeds are maybe, you know, 50 miles an hour, but we're getting there in half of a second where outdoor motocross, we're on the same exact bikes, but you're going higher speeds, 60, 70 miles an hour. Still tighter course if you're comparing it to something like NASCAR or car racing. I would say it's more technical, definitely more dangerous. But um, yeah, I think that's why we love it and why why people get addicted to it the way they do. Nothing I've ever done in my life can quite match that adrenaline level.
1: That's perfect, and I'm, I'm glad you you gave a point of comparison there that I think a lot of people can relate to because I'm sure most have seen a NASCAR race or even within the motorcycle world, you have these different – and you touched upon it with the mention of tricks. People may have seen like the X Games where guys on dirt bikes are doing backflips and flying through the air doing crazy stuff. And I think it's good you touched upon the point that that's not really the purpose of this, although I guess in theory you can do some stuff if you have the time and the <laughs> and the ability on the track. But it's more about obviously the race itself and comparing it with even like MotoGP where people have seen motorcycles riding on the road – speeds are much higher, but that's an asphalt sport as opposed to the dirt, what you do. And even with like a flat track or dirt track, which is is on the dirt technically, but it's sort of a big flat oval as opposed to what you're on, which is a lot of different obstacles and and jumps of different
0: kinds. Right, when I say motocross, everyone's first question from the common person is, oh, so you do X games, right? Like the tricks, I'm like, no, no, we race. And then, you know, when you're talking to people that maybe are more familiar with other motorsports like MotoGP, which is the street bike racing or NASCAR or rally car or any of those Supermoto, which is a motocross kind of style bike, but more on tarmac, it's all relative. It's all scary in its own right. When we say we're only going 40, 50 miles an hour, I think some people immediately can write it off as being not as scary as the MotoGP guys that are going 200 miles an hour. But it's just, it's a different thing. Like I said, we're in the air more than we're not. And when you have 22 other guys on top of you, when you're trying to do that, it can get a little scary.
1: That's a really interesting point of comparison. I, I don't know if there's any hard statistics that has ever analyzed that, but I wonder what the comparison in terms of actual injuries are between, like for example, road racing, where unfortunately if you do fall, you're likely to be pretty severely injured at maybe 200 miles an hour. but I would say that the falls in motocross are far more frequent, you know, by comparison. So is it a lot of little injuries compared to maybe a a lower risk of one really big injury on something like MotoGP?
0: That's an interesting question. And those guys, believe it or not, get away with a lot of crashes just fine. Even high-speed ones going 140, 180 miles an hour, they can walk away totally fine. They have actually protective gear that when they crash... It has like a telemetry system that knows you're crashing before you do. So before you hit the ground, it'll expand and you'll have a protective layer to help you in those situations. And then as long as you crash on the tarmac, you have leathers on, so you slide. In motocross, you don't have any of that. And when you hit the dirt, the dirt can be pretty hard and you don't slide. You more so uh, stick and tumble.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I'm familiar with the the road race gear and it's almost like an internal airbag system. And I know we're off on a little tangent here, but what are your thoughts on that as it pertains to like a dirt sport? I mean, is that a possibility or is it too restrictive in terms of your ability to move to be practical?
0: I always think about that. I wonder if it'd be an issue because we do hit the ground a lot and sometimes it's small impacts. I know nothing about it. It'd be interesting to look into that more and maybe you could set it up to where it'll only... Activate upon a crash at a certain speed. Right.
1: I'm imagining the kind of car crash where you don't want your airbag to deploy, but it <laughs> right, right, but it does. Where you like touch somebody at two miles an hour, and if you're right, if you take a small fall at low speed, you don't want your airbags to deploy and completely ruin your race. <laughs> right,
0: and it costs you a lot of money because I know those things aren't cheap when they explode either. But it'd be something to look into for sure because I think at our level. Of course, the helmets that we wear are absolutely top-notch. The boots that we wear, the knee braces that we wear. But other than that, I don't have elbow pads. I don't wear a chest protector. I don't wear any of that. I mean, there's a fine line between trying to be comfortable and being able to maneuver and do all the things that we do on the dirt bike and then having obviously safety as well.
1: Right. And that that's interesting how it's evolved over the years because if you look back 20, 30 years ago, external big bulky chest protectors were far more common i mean i got into the sport from my father who was a professional dirt track flat track racer back in the day and the gear that people wore customarily in motocross has changed quite a bit if guys wear a chest protector at all it seems to be just the internal kind of slim line one and then i have seen a lot of the head sort of stabilizing avoiding the breaking of your collarbone apparatus which is relatively new to the sport as well but i know that's also restrictive in terms of head movement so
0: Yeah, and a lot of the pro guys have gone away from the neck brace systems where in 2011 to 2013, 14, they were popular and almost all the pros were starting to wear them. Now, there's only two or three guys off the top of my head I can think of that wear them, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Yeah,
1: is that a product of a safety issue or just not trendy or?
0: I'd like to say it's not because it doesn't look cool. I mean, that's not why I, I personally, I can speak for myself and say that I don't wear one because all of the neck braces I've worn in the past have limited my movement just enough to where it's a little bit of a factor. And if it's a 2% thing, then I, I get rid of it. You know, if it's on my mind at all, if it's affecting me in one little section on a two minute track, but it's two seconds that it affects me, then and that's a big deal. I have to get rid of it.
1: Yeah, at your level everything is critical even the the smallest amounts.
0: Yeah, but safety is critical too. So I I'm always I'm, I'm somewhere in between on that, where, I, of course, I'd, I'm open to, and I'd like to always be open to wearing more protective gear. It's just about something that doesn't affect your movement, because if it affects your movement, then it changes the riding position you're in, and then it makes you more dangerous the way that you're riding the bike, right? right? Because then you're trying to change your riding position to adapt for whatever type of malfunction you have going on, and then all of a sudden you're making yourself way more dangerous, way more likely to crash in the first place.
1: Right. Now, circling back to sort of the basic definition for those who are not familiar, what kind of bikes are you riding? And obviously you have a 250 and a 450 class. And, and how does that compare with bike that someone might be familiar with, maybe from the street or what they've seen on TV, that kind of thing?
0: Yeah. So the two premier classes are 250 and 450. They're the same height. They look the same to the common person looking at them. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It's not like the 450 is twice as tall or twice as large as the 250. It's just motor displacement displacement. I'm trying to think what to compare it to. What would you compare it to?
1: I ride a 450 myself and, you know, it's, I guess, a roller coaster or a a really fast sports car in terms of the acceleration. You know, if you've never been on a motorcycle, it's pretty hard to create a a relevant point of comparison. But I guess that would be my best guess because when you tell someone that the horsepower, for example, of a 450 is maybe in the 55 to 60 range or more, depending on what, what kind of work you have done to it, that sounds low when you think about like a Corvette having 500 horsepower or something. So it's difficult to put it in the minds of someone that, yeah, but this bike weighs 240 pounds and the acceleration is is incredibly fast if you're hooking up. So
0: I would say that putting it in horsepower terms relative to a car, the acceleration off the bottom, like out of a corner that you experience on a 450 race bike that I race would be equivalent to, I don't know, probably a car that was... 800 to 1200 horsepower, maybe something equivalent to like a Tesla, right? Right. Have you ever been in a Tesla or driven one where it's like, it takes your stomach falls out your butt when you accelerate?
1: Yeah. It's, I have a model three, so I, I can definitely relate to that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. First people that haven't been in one or haven't been in an extremely fast car or haven't been in a roller coaster, like not a normal roller coaster, like a crazy roller coaster that goes like a hundred miles an hour and it gets there in two seconds. It's a lot... Of bike to handle. The technology is amazing for how much power it is. It's very light, which if anything, just makes it even a little bit more scary. But also I'm only 150 pounds, so it doesn't feel me on it.
1: Yeah. That, that brings me to another question, which is with regard to the professional athletes who engage in the sport, like obviously to look at someone like yourself or Ken Roxon is currently the points leader in, in the series right now for the 450 class. These guys are not bodybuilders. They don't look like Olympic athletes. And I don't mean that as an offense to anybody, you know, you included, but it's obviously not a sport that requires the traditional kind of musculature that you would see like in a a football player or basketball player. So what are the training sort of routines for someone in motocross? What are the muscles that are most important? What kind of practices do you engage in to prepare your body for it?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It's very specific. I would say it's close to what a professional cyclist would look like in that. Their core and their lower body is extremely built and muscular. And then their upper body kind of looks just like just some skinny guy that plays video games or something. (laughs) Now, everybody's body is different. So there are some people that, of course, have to work more in the gym and especially in the 450 class, work more on building upper body strength to be able to hold on to the machine. For myself, I've always had a really strong upper body. So I have to be careful because we get what's called arm pump, which is almost like compartment syndrome in that the blood goes into your arm and then it can't get out. So our muscle fascia is basically bound so tight around, I'm sure I'm botching all of this and you probably know more about it than I do as far as the actual definition, but it gets to the point where you can't feel anything. You can't feel your hand on the throttle. You can't feel your hand on the clutch, your hand on the front brake. So we can't build that much upper body strength. It's all about, and controlling the bike comes from, I always say, your belly button down. So you need that leg strength, you need that core strength. And most importantly, honestly, you need cardio.
1: That was an excellent description. And, and obviously I'm familiar with arm pump, not nearly at, at your level, but just, you know, if you're riding hard to your limit, regardless of where that is and on the scale of speed and ability to, to go fast, you're gonna get that arm pump. And I think you you described it accurately and it's, really counterintuitive which is interesting because someone on the outside might think that if you're suffering from an ability or an inability to hang on for long periods of time then what you need to do is train and build up your forearms but that's actually the opposite of what you want to do because of that compartment syndrome that you described.
0: Right and that's a frustrating thing too because that is everybody's first answer oh we'll just do a forearm workout strengthen your forearm it's the exact opposite really. I think somebody was asking Ken Roxon about his arms and Ken Rockson, for those of you that don't know, he's currently the best racer there is, crashed and broke his arm in however many places, had 14, 15 surgeries, almost lost his arm. And everybody was concerned about grip strength and forearm strength. And his answer to that when he came back was, listen, you don't want that anyway. That's actually a, a positive. If anything that's come from this is I have less grip strength in that arm. So it's tough. I, I've struggled with it. I've had surgery to cut open my muscle fascia and try to make my arms a little bit more like jello. I think cyclists sometimes do that same surgery for their calves, but it's tough. And then, you know, talking to the everyday person as well, the misunderstanding in that how athletic the sport is and how much cardio and strength and how physically demanding it is, is can be frustrating to explain to the normal person as well. Because if you think about it, oh, well, you're just twisting the throttle, right? (laughs) And it's like, no, no, there's quite a bit more that goes into it than that. I, I'm very athletic all around, and I train on, on a road bike. And I go for runs every day. I'm in the gym, and nothing can get my heart rate where it gets on the dirt bike.
1: That's really interesting that every motocross rider, whether they be a professional such as yourself or just an amateur, if, if they've done it for a, a lengthy enough time to have conversations with non-motocross riders in their social circles, it seems like we all have encountered that from someone who's never thrown their leg over a bike. You know, I, I had this in high school with a friend I'll never forget. We were in the cafeteria and she said, well... I don't get it. It has a motor. Like you're not pedaling anything, so what are you doing? <laughs> and it's it's so difficult to explain to them how hard it is when you're out there, especially with the arm pump and the fatigue and like you said, the cardio. And, and again, I don't ride nearly at your level, but um, just, you know, if you're pushing yourself like that, it is exhausting.
0: It works every muscle group you can think of. And then on top of that, it is one of the most physically demanding as far as cardio goes. It, so just to give an idea of this. In Supercross, we're out there for, we'll call it 12 to 15 minutes. In outdoor racing, we're out there for 30 minutes. So we'll just say outdoor racing. We're out there for 30 minutes plus two laps. That's 34 to 36 minutes. Our heart rate average is 182 to 195. Some guys are even higher than that. Some guys are 198 to 205. Sustained for 35 minutes. Now, for a lot of people listening and anyone that knows anything about heart rate that might seem impossible, and typically I would say it almost is impossible, because on a road bike, if I'm cycling for me to hit 180, feels like I'm about to have a heart attack. But I can sustain that and higher for 35 minutes straight on the dirt bike. Now, I'm sure some of that's adrenaline, for sure, right? But um, there's just something about it's like picture doing 500 push-ups while simultaneously doing a thousand squats while simultaneously doing a sprint run and it's like there's so much happening at once
1: right and the stress that's on you in the sense that obviously you're trying to place as high up as you can so you're going as fast as you can but you're also thinking about the consequences of if I do this next jump wrong especially on the tracks you ride and and the distances you're covering in the air I mean that's you know 90 100 feet and it's a long time to think about I took off the wrong way because I, you know, I wasn't well prepared for that jump or whatnot. And, but it happens at every single race to somebody. So, you know, that that is real and you've got to kind of suppress that fear while you're, while your heart's pumping at that
0: rate. And it's very difficult to get in a consistent breathing pattern with being that scared all the time, right? Because when you get scared, what do you do? You hold your breath and you you take kind of that slight inhale and you, you'll hold that inhale. Now, imagine being terrified the entire time you're out there in a situation where your body's like, okay, or your mind's going, am I about to die right now? Am I about to die right now? And that's happening 15 times in a one minute lap. It's hard to remember to breathe. As silly as that sounds, I'll catch myself holding my breath for three laps. And all of a sudden I go, oh man, I just let out that big exhale. I'm like, I didn't breathe for three and a half minutes.
1: Yeah, it's really unnerving. And and I do the same thing on the amateur races here where you forget to breathe because you're you're constantly just puckered up waiting for the impact that, you know, you hope never comes, but you're on the edge of what you're capable of doing, whatever that limit is for, you know, the individual rider. But, and then to add to that, as we mentioned earlier, the arm pump where you get to the point where you can't feel your hands. So you don't have the capacity to fix what you don't know is wrong until you land. And you end up with this phenomenon that riders call whiskey throttle. Well, I'll I'll let you explain what whiskey throttle is from, from the experience perspective.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So Whiskey throttle for a beginner would be basically turning the throttle and then panic ensues. And for some reason, it is very hard instinctually to know to turn your, I know it sounds obvious, but to turn your wrist to get the bike to stop going. I think some of that is just pure panic. Some of it is as you accelerate your weight shifts back, as your weight shifts back your arms extend, the weight goes into your arms, and it's really hard to then twist the throttle off because all of your weight's into your hands. So at a pro level, whiskey throttle wouldn't be that where, you know, if I sat my wife on the dirt bike and said, all right, go down the street, she could get whiskey throttle just trying to go down the street, right? For us, when we get arm pump and you can't feel the throttle anymore, whiskey throttle can, I can describe it as to jump 85 feet in the middle of what we call a rhythm section where there's a sequence of jumps back to back to back that 85 foot jump might only require one we'll go percentage here maybe 10 percent throttle that is so hard to do and it is so precise and it's such a small twist of that throttle that when you don't have feeling of your hand anymore how the heck are you supposed to gauge that so that's what whiskey throttle could be because if you're going 60% throttle when you're supposed to be going 10, you're gonna get yourself hurt because you're gonna jump one or two more jumps past where you intended on going. That can get really scary.
1: I agree 100%. I think it's a product of that panic of trying to hang on to the thing that's running away with you. And because it's a twist throttle on the handlebar, it's a natural, like an ergonomic design to make it worse. I've often thought about what if you tried to put a thumb throttle on a dirt bike? would that alleviate some of the problem also with the you know obviously the riding attack position of keeping your elbows up but if you're twisting the throttle on the right side you have a tendency to put that elbow down I'm sure there's a good reason why they're they're not built like quads but I've often thought about that from the whiskey throttle perspective and to your point you know a lot of the tracks the big tracks that I ride out here I, I don't ride in the stadiums where it's so tight but out here if you have one jump you usually have a decent ramp and a decent ramp down so that there's a margin of error there that's pretty healthy but for what you guys do, yeah, the, the 10% difference is, I mean, there's just no pocket there for you to get it wrong. If you're too short, you're casing it, and if you're too long, you're landing on the next jump that is is equally painful. So that, that's got to be uh, an incredible experience.
0: Yeah, the sport is scary to begin with, but supercross, some people say, even those that race professionally outdoors in motocross, Consider Supercross a completely different sport just because the timing is so specific and there's so many jumps involved while still trying to race and still trying to go fast. For anybody listening that isn't familiar, I recommend just go on YouTube when this podcast is done, just type in Monster Energy Supercross or Supercross Racing and just watch a video of it and create a little bit of an understanding of what's going on. It's, it's pretty hectic. And I know I'm biased, but it's a darn cool sport.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would agree, but I'm probably biased too. Well, when we come back, I want to ask you how you got into motocross and supercross and also, you know, what the current state of the sport is and how it's evolved. We've been talking with professional motocross, supercross racer, AJ Cotanzaro and we'll be back after a short break.
0: At American Public University, we
1: believe higher education is not one size fits all. That's why we offer 200 modern programs that build on your knowledge and fit your schedule. Because we believe universities should adapt to the needs of students, not the other way around. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Online classes start every month. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back. We've been speaking with professional motocross, supercross racer, AJ Catanzaro on the particulars of the sport and uh, sort of illuminating this world for people who are not already familiar with it. So I want to ask you, AJ, from sort of your life history, how did you end up with motorcycles and what was the road like going from what I assume was maybe riding and racing as a, as a child into adulthood and eventually working your way into professional competition?
0: I will say that as the sport has developed over the last... We'll call it 15 years. It's turned almost kind of like an Olympic sport, where you see the athletes getting into it really, really young. I started riding when I was two. I don't even think I could talk yet. My parents quickly realized that at age four, five, that I was pretty good. And then, so what we we began doing was traveling the country and racing all of the amateur national events. At which point, I started winning a lot, and. It just kind of snowballed into, you know, you upgrade from a 50cc to a 65 to an 85 when you're 13 years old, you get on what's called a super mini, which is kind of an in-between stage between a child's bike. I say child's bike, but they're still really fast and a bike that an adult would ride. And then when I was 15, my dad basically said, hey, uh, I'm out of money. Either we quit this thing or I'm going to send you down to Georgia or Florida and you can try to figure it out and train and, and see if it works out. So I went down with a buddy and slept on his couch in his RV for that whole year when I was, I think I was 14, turning 15. And that was at a facility called Millsaps Training Facility in Georgia. And I was riding with a bunch of really high level riders on a bike that was slightly outdated and had a lot of time on it. And I didn't know what really what I was doing still, even though I'd won a lot of amateur titles that I was just a young kid that was sleeping on a couch and trying to figure it out. And I ended up signing to an arena cross team, which is basically arena racing, which is even tighter quarters than what I currently do. Won a championship in that in my very first year. And then I signed to a supercross team when I was 16 years old. So I turned pro when I was 16 and uh, just been doing it ever since. 10 years pro at this point now. So life goes by quick and it's been a whirlwind. And every time I tell that story, it's like, holy cow, like, I can't believe this all actually happened, but
1: yeah, that's a, a long road for such a, a young career still, you know?
0: Yeah. There's been a lot that transpired. But the average
1: racer today, I don't know what the average age is, but I'm sure it's it's pretty young.
0: Yeah. It's crazy too, because what's tough is I'm smarter now than I've ever been. I'm I'm more mentally mature, but your body goes away quick. And in the sport with injuries, a lot of the top guys retire when they're 25, 26, which is my age. I don't feel like I've quite reached my physical peak. Knock on wood, I've been very lucky with keeping the injuries to a minimal. Now, that's relevant to our sport. When I say to a minimal, I could list off 20 broken bones that I've had and 15 concussions. But for most people, that's not that bad in this sport. I see myself doing it for, I don't know, four or five more years. But a lot of the, the top contenders in this sport are 19, 20, 21 years old, which is so young. That's so young. It's crazy to think that I was 16 years old and, and racing professionally. I didn't know anything when I was 16 years old, but maybe that's good because I wasn't scared of anything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's required to have that fearlessness. I wonder, I don't know how that compares to average ages for you know elite athletes and basketball, football, baseball, that kind of thing. But I, I know that obviously college recruitment is big and whatnot. So you can assume it's going to be, if not in the late teens, then in the early twenties, for sure, that seems to be the stereotypical physical peak for a lot of it. In the 10 years that you've been doing the sport, have you seen the sport itself evolve a lot?
0: Yes, so I was right in the early stages where when I said I went and lived at a facility, facilities didn't exist about three years before that. So when I was a a kid racing competitively, amateur racing, living at a training facility with trainers and private tracks and fitness coaches and mental coaches and all of this at your disposal, that didn't exist. Now to be at the top level, I don't want to say you have to do that, but 99.9% of the riders that are making it in the sport now are going through that facility at a really young age where I was one of the last generations that could kind of get away with, I went to public school up until 10th grade. I lived in Connecticut, so I didn't ride or race in the winter time. So I would take five or six months off the bike. You can't really get away with that anymore. You have to be on a dirt bike five days a week, and uh, doing it all year round. You can't take a five-month hiatus because you lose out five months on somebody at 12, 13 years old. It's very unlikely that you'll ever get that five months back.
1: Mm. Now, by the time you had gone pro, going back even 10 years, if if my memory serves, that was already past the point where competition water-cooled floor strokes had dominated the scene over what used to previously be uh, the classes, you know, when I was a kid growing up were the 125s and the 250 two-strokes, but now today it seems like technologically there's just nobody's on a two-stroke out there. They're just not competitive. And so that had that transition at the pro level already completely taken police.
0: Yeah, so I was just thinking as, as far as competition goes, but yeah, as far as technology and equipment, I turned pro on a four-stroke, which is what we're all racing currently. The biggest change I would say is that when I turned pro, I want to say I was pro for maybe one year on bikes that were not fuel injected. And ever since I think 2011, yeah, I would say 2010, 2011, all of the manufacturers now have a fuel injected bike. Other than that, really, companies and manufacturers have played around with going from spring forks, spring suspension to air suspension, and the bikes, you don't have to kick them to start them anymore, they're electric start, which is really convenient. Hydraulic clutches, as opposed to cable clutches, it's little stuff, little stuff that compounds and makes a big difference and makes things really convenient, but um, nothing huge like the jump from going from two strokes to four strokes. I think the next big jump is going to be the, the wave of electric bikes, which I'm all for. I, I love electric stuff.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I, I remember I had the first generation YZ426 four-strokes four that were ridiculously hard to start if they were hot. Yeah, that
0: was like a tank. Yeah,
1: manual compression releases on the handlebar, and and today, I mean, uh, the electric start, you know, in and of itself, they're they're easier to start just by having that built into the cam and. But yeah, the movement to the electric bikes, it's interesting because of course there was Alta Motors at one point that had the, what they called the Redshift, was a competition motocross bike. They've since gone out of business as I understand, and they wanted to be bought out by someone else. But my understanding is they couldn't find an investor to carry them. And I don't know of anybody that's really seriously building an electric motocross bike, although there seems to be all kinds of transition bicycle slash motorcycle slash moped slash scooters i mean there's all these different play machines that are available are you aware of anybody at the current moment because you need to reach that amalgamation to get a bike that's eligible to compete at pro racing level you know that that has sold enough units in production do you know of anybody who's preparing to do that or or getting serious the japanese brands or anyone else
0: i know ktm is and from my understanding ktm is developing it with the generation that they've now developed the KTM 50 electric bike with, which is genius if you think about it. So then they'll develop the electric version of the 65, the 85, the super mini, the 125, so on, and develop it as that age group reaches that age so that they'll always be on electric bikes. Because you think about it, any human being is, for the most part, is kind of a Opposed to the change, especially in a motocross community, people don't like change. People are still hung up on the two strokes. Forget about hopping to something that doesn't make any noise. No 30, 40-year-old, for the most part, is going to want to make that jump. So they're developing it with that new generation. I think maybe something will come out sooner, but I think that's their play for selling large numbers of those things. I'm all about it. I rode the Alta few months ago and it was the best bike I've ever ridden in my life. Wow. And that was basically a gen one version of a electric race bike and it was still amazing. And what was cool about it is it was the size of a 250F. It was, had four maps. The difference between map one and map four was the difference between like a 250 and a 450. So that's what made it fun is you could have with the four different maps, you could have four completely different motorcycles that you were riding. It's not like on a four-stroke where you have different, we have um, fuel mappings that make a a little bit of a difference. I would say it's the equivalent to changing a counter sprocket or something like that where you notice a subtle difference in in low-end power. Maybe you could map it so that it pulls a little bit longer so it goes faster down a long straightaway, but these four maps on the electric bike was night and day difference.
1: It was so cool. It's interesting. I didn't know you'd written the Alta and that your opinion was so high of them. I've I've never ridden one, but I've I've read the articles and watched videos.
0: I made a YouTube video on the day I rode one and tested all four maps. You'll you'll crack up watching this video. That's awesome because you can hear me narrating and talking about how much I'm loving it as I'm out there riding it. <laughs> it's pretty cool.
1: <laughs> that that is cool. Now, do you think that? If and when that amalgamation reaches the level that they can compete in the professional Supercross series that those bikes will be, because again, I, I have a Tesla, so I'm familiar with how far superior, you know, an electric car is to a gas driven car. Do you think that they will immediately outcompete by leaps and bounds, anything else that's out there to the extent that, you know, a 450 just won't be able to hold a candle to the electric bike that's riding alongside it?
0: Yeah, I would say hundred percent it does become legal and professional racing, it's going to have to be its own category. Yeah, But I'm all for it. I'm pretty open-minded when it comes to change and trying new things. And I think the technology is just so far above and beyond any type of combustion engine. But also what I like the idea of is that you can kind of level the playing field and you could have more restrictions or I don't know the adjective or the word I'm looking for, but it'd be easier to just put everybody on the same setting. I don't know if they would do it that way, but it would just because right now leveling the playing field yeah for those listening it may not know what i'm talking about let's say i'm a 25th place rider right now i have other responsibilities i'm not training full-time so i'm 25th not too bad but not the not the best the guy winning the guy in fifth place is not on an equivalent machine that i'm on they're riding factory equipment there's so much r&d research and development into these things that Their bikes are worth a couple hundred thousand. My bike's worth ten thousand. So it makes it difficult to compete. Now, if we put, if we were all on the same bikes, would they be better than me? Yeah, but the playing field would be a lot more even. (laughs) And I think with electric bikes, you could do that.
1: Right. Well, I was going to ask you in the vein of the electric bike, if the major point of differentiation or or advantage that you see would be obviously the, the not having to shift or clutch. And now is it legal in the sense that I, I don't even know at professional level, can they run like the recluse centrifugal clutches on the factory bikes if they want to?
0: Yep. You can run them. I don't think many guys do because what the old recluse clutches would do is the recluse, it was an automatic clutch. So that means that you could, click it in a gear without using the clutch, you could hit the brakes without using the clutch, you could come to a dead stop and not pull the clutch in. Where if you were driving a car and came to a dead stop in a manual car, it would stall without pulling the clutch in.
1: Right, that's the key difference is you can't afford to stall at that level. For those who, who are listening and don't know like why is that important.
0: <laughs> right. But the one major fault of the automatic clutches is that they didn't allow for any engine brake. Right? So when you would let off the throttle, the bike would just freewheel and coast. And engine brake, for those of you listening, I'll try to describe it. I'll just explain in a car. So if you were driving in a car, in a manual car, in fourth gear and threw it down into second gear and just let go of the clutch with no brakes, no, no nothing, the car would, whoo, it would rev up loud and it would kind of throw you to the front. That's, that's stopping power. That's engine brake. We utilize that to stop. I mean, obviously, we're using the brakes, but we're using a lot of that engine brake to stop. So with the automatic clutches, the bike would just freewheel, and you couldn't stop as quickly. But I think that with the new version of those, I'm pretty sure that they have somehow you can utilize engine brake as well. So I don't know if those guys have it or not. You would think they do because you see them crash, and they just their bikes will be on the ground forever. And then they just get on, and the bike's somehow still running, and it's like, "Whoa, hang on a second! How did that thing not stall?"
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's probably the case. But I've I've thought about that in the vein of not just the centrif- centrifugal clutches, but also the electric bikes, if and when they get here. I think it's a matter of when, obviously, because I rode a, a Suron. And uh, if you've seen these things, they're like super duper mountain bike, not quite dirt bike, uh, hybrid electric bike. And one of the things I really loved about it, just playing with it, because it it can't manage like a motocross track it it just doesn't go fast enough but the brakes are you know front lever on the right hand side is your front brake but left side lever because you don't have a clutch is rear brake and i i really found that to be awesome because of course if you're in a right hand turn and your foot's out you can't brake and have your foot out at the same time so having that brake on the handlebar as opposed to on the pedal was really an advantage and i thought well if you didn't have to clutch there's an empty place you could put your rear brake you know
0: so the alta that i rode the owner of that set his bike up that way. It came with a foot brake, but he put the handbrake on it. Now, the benefit of that is it makes you just feel more attached to the bike because your feet, typically on a dirt bike, your feet are moving a lot because you're having to upshift and downshift on the left side. You're having to use the rear brake on the right side. So your feet are constantly sliding forward and back to get to the controls. On an electric bike, you just leave your feet on the balls of your feet tight to the frame in position where they would normally be. And you really don't have to move them modern day riding style as well is starting to become you don't take your feet off the pegs as much as back in the old days people think you had to putting your foot out for a turn is becoming a little bit more old school you can kind of just stay attached leave your feet on the bike i always say man if i could have like some mountain bike clips and just clip my feet into these foot pegs on a dirt bike there's a lot of times where i almost wish i could do that but um oh yeah i'm all for electric bikes and also the, think about it, the big benefit of electric bike is that it's silent. So a lot of motocross tracks nowadays are closing down because of lawsuits and neighbors and people complaining about noise. So if you can eliminate the noise factor, then the only thing you'd have to worry about for a motocross track would be liability and dust factor. Right. The noise is a big one. So that would be awesome.
1: I think the experience on the track would be unique too, because you'd actually be able to hear if someone, you know, yelling at you to get out of the way, <laughs> or uh, you know, vice versa, whatever the case may be on the track.
0: Yeah, and you can hear the bike working underneath you, which is a strange thing. So, you can hear, you know, the chain slapping. You can hear the tire gripping the ground as you accelerate. It's different. It's different in the in the, the same way that driving a a Tesla it's not the same experience as driving any other car. It just feels so far above and beyond. And I've driven nice things. I've driven Lamborghinis. I've driven Porsche GT3 RS. I've driven every nice car you can imagine. And a Tesla still blows absolutely everything out of the water.
1: Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Now, one other question I wanted to ask you is because we covered the bikes, but the tracks, you watched a motocross or supercross race from 30 years ago, and you compare it to what exists today. It seems like, the ante keeps being upped for the sake of entertainment which i get but do you think we've reached a limit to that in terms of what the sport is willing to weather because you know obviously the more difficult and challenging and insane these jumps get the more injuries occur and so i'm just wondering is it reaching a breaking point or do you think they're just going to continue to go bigger and bolder and and more dangerous as more and more people flock to this for that sort of shock factor because To face the reality, there are some people who are watching it you know, and and right, wrong or indifferent, they're most excited when somebody crashes because they wanna see that sort of footage. But when we hope it doesn't happen, but in the same vein, we're like, those are the videos we watch on repeat because they're the most interesting. So I'm curious to know if you've seen that evolution just in the last 10 years of your professional career and if you see it continuing to bigger, longer, steeper, uglier, more dangerous
0: obstacles. Good question. So this is tough because what happens is not only is the equipment getting way better, the riders are getting better and there is a fine line between making a track that you would think would be easier. So whatever easier means, right? Most people's idea of a, a safer, easier track would be what? Okay, let's make these jumps a little smaller, right? What happens when you make the jump smaller is all we're going to do is jump more of these jumps at once. So, if you have two jumps back to back that are small and you're like, oh, these are safer, guess what we're going to do? We're going to jump them all at one time, which is now more dangerous. Right. Or if not doing that, we're just going to override the obstacle for what it is. So, if you give us a bunch of, you know, let's say 60 foot tabletops, which is extremely basic all in a row, and we're forced to only hit those tabletops for what they are, we're going to ride the crap out of them and hit them way faster than what we should be. Therefore, the speed on the track is gonna be higher and the crashes are gonna be worse. My view on it has always been if they build steeper, bigger obstacles that are more technical at least, that it will slow speeds down. So even if there's more frequent crashes that the speeds will at least be lower. Yeah.
1: That's an interesting point.
0: It's all about keeping speeds low. So whatever that looks like from a track layout perspective, I think you know there's an obstacle called a whoop section, which is just a bunch of like, it's almost like moguls for skiers where you have to skim across the tops of them. The trend lately, the last couple of years has been making the whoops smaller. But what happens with that is next thing you know, we're going 50 miles an hour through a set of whoops. So when you do crash, you, these guys are getting annihilated where, if you built the whoops, three feet taller, would people crash more frequently? Yeah, sure. But they'd probably only be going 18 miles an hour. That's always been my outlook on it. And it's tough. It's a topic of debate within the sport big time right now. Yeah. It's
1: interesting to see how the sport, not not just the tracks, but also the, the riders have evolved. It's almost like a creativity. Like I don't remember again, I grew up watching like the era of the Jeremy McGrath, you know, rain. And I don't remember like scrubbing being such a big thing at that time. You know, I don't, I don't remember that being such an integral part of the sport, but today the, the level is, you know, when you said that earlier that the riders are getting better, it made me think it'd be interesting to see Eli Tomac or Ken and against the, the, the Jeremy McGrath in his prime to see if they really are that much faster. And I think there is an element to that because again, riders are finding these unique ways that almost defy the laws of physics, you know, the, the scrubbing of a jump to get further faster, you know, just to that that extra 1% that I, I just don't remember seeing. Maybe I've just forgotten, but I don't remember it being quite to that cutthroat level like it was 30 years ago, as, as compared to today.
0: When you watch a guy like ken Roxon do a time qualifying lap where he's doing one lap as fast as possible and this is coming from a professional rider it does not seem possible what they're doing it really doesn't when you go to orlando i highly recommend get in there watch time qualifying it is ridiculous to watch those guys throw down a fast lap like you said it defies what you would think is even possible now jeremy mcgrath who's statistically the best supercross rider to ever live was in his prime 25 years ago yeah ish holy cow that's crazy to say been a little while was amazing on a dirt bike but things have changed a lot since then And, and back then when he would do a jump they'd be like oh wow he tripled it in a rhythm section people are jumping four all the time now people are jumping we call it quads jumping four almost at every single race and you look at the obstacles and you're like 25 years ago, no one would have even considered that an option. And fast forward 25 years, if you don't jump that quad, you're not going to be competitive. So the track designers have to be very careful in that sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember him doing knackknacks knacks and tricks and, you know, like making it look easy and everybody was so excited. But like you said, the bar is continually raised as the sport evolves. Well, I know we're at time here and I want to be respectful and, and thank you for being on the, the podcast. But before we go, is there anything else that you wanted to cover topic-wise or anything else that you feel is relevant to the discussion of just giving uh, someone who's who's never seen the sport, never thrown their leg over a bike, sort of a, a bird's eye view of what this looks like?
0: I could sit here and talk with you about dirt bikes all day long.
1: <laughs> <laughs> As um, could I,
0: for sure. Yeah. No, not, off the top of my head, no, thank you for having me. And we'll have to hop on here again sometime. And one hour flew by, so...
1: I'd like to, it definitely did. I'd like to follow your career and hopefully have you you back. Before we go, uh, tell the people where can they find you on social media and YouTube, just so folks know if they want to check this out, where to look.
0: Yeah. So guys, I would go to uh, YouTube and just type in AJ Zero and hopefully the the spelling of it is somewhere wherever you clicked into this podcast so you can find it. But yeah, just just go on my YouTube. I, I teach for a living now and I actively race as well. So I juggle the two, but I think for anybody dipping their toe in the sport, or even just casually looking it up to see what it's all about, my channel would be an interesting one to watch because I'm able to kind of make sense of it from a teacher standpoint. And then you guys can check out the, the racing and the, the riding as well. Again, I'm biased, but dirt bikes are, are awesome.
1: I think that's a a good encapsulation. And as someone who's, you know, followed your videos for quite some time before getting to talk with you, I can definitely say I think you're a good teacher in that respect. Anybody who can sort of convey what the sport is about and and what to do over a video, you know, it's difficult enough to do it yourself, let alone to teach it. And I think you do a good job. So I wish you much success with it. And, And thank you for being here. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise and perspectives on these topics. And, and again, AJ, thanks for joining me today for this episode of Inelectable.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: And thank you to our listeners for joining us. You can learn more about these topics by visiting the various APUS-sponsored blogs. Be well and stay safe, everyone.
0: For more information about our university, visit us at
1: studyatapu.com. APU.